This podcast includes frank discussions of mature themes that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This podcast is intended to provide encouragement and support through personal storytelling. The views expressed are the opinions of the participants and not intended to be medical, legal, clinical, or professional information or advice of any kind. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. 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 Welcome, 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 welcome to the Bubble Hour. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power. Weakness head on me. Jean McCarthy, and you're listening to The Bubble Hour. Hello, and welcome to The Bubble Hour Archives, a treasure trove of episodes ranging from 2012 to 2022. I'm recovery advocate and author Jean McCarthy. I joined The Bubble Hour as a host in season two. Together with other hosts over the years, Ellie, Lisa, Amanda, and Catherine, we all extend to you our gratitude for listening and a heartfelt wish that this podcast will find a welcome home in your recovery toolkit. The resources mentioned on the show are available at thebubblehour.com, including information on the online support group called the BFB, or Booze Free Brigade, often mentioned on the show. Now, if you're hearing this message, you're listening to one of our free archived episodes, and we'll make sure that there are loads of these available for you to enjoy. These are partial versions of the original recordings, and if you want to hear more, you can listen to full versions and the entire back catalog ad-free by joining us on Patreon. So just head to patreon.com slash thebubblehour to learn more. I'll also put a link in the show notes to make it even easier for you to find that. So, all right then, enjoy the show. Hello, this is Ellie, and welcome to The Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. And I'm here tonight, as usual, with my co-hosts, Amanda and Lisa. And tonight, we are going to be talking about addictive personalities. If you are a recovering alcoholic, it is quite likely that you have been told you have an addictive personality, or perhaps you've wondered this yourself. And people have probably even told you long before you even realized that you were an alcoholic, that you had an addictive me, had an addictive personality, but what does that actually mean? We're going to delve into that tonight in a little bit more detail. On tonight's show, we're going to talk about the common character traits of an addictive personality and how having an addictive personality can keep you stuck in alcoholism and addiction or endanger your recovery, and uh, as well as tools that you could use to avoid common pitfalls of addictive thinking. Let's start with the definition of an addictive personality. For a person to be afflicted with disease of addiction, three elements have to be present. The first one is a physical factor, the second one is psychological tendencies, and the third one is environmental factors. And tonight's show, we are only going to focus on the second element, which is psychological tendencies, that they are at the root of addictive personalities and the subsequent addictive behavior that results from those, those psychological tendencies. All right, so what are the basic characteristic traits that are associated with an addictive personality? Here is a basic list, but please bear in mind that there are almost infinite variations on these, on these traits that we'll talk about, but we're going to talk about the ones that are most commonly found. And all of these traits appear in all people as well, obviously, but for the addictive personality, they are often exaggerated or uncontrolled, 
and they render a person incapable of being at peace, which then compels the addictive personality to seek relief from a substance like alcohol. And obviously for the purposes of this show, we are talking primarily about alcohol, but we'll also talk about replacement addictions later on in the show. Often these personality traits lie deep beneath the surface and may not be readily apparent until the behaviors become disruptive in the addictive person's life. They may not actually even be readily apparent to the person themselves, which is something that I found to be true for me as well. The disruptions, the, the disruptions and pain that these behaviors cause will drive the addictive personality deeper into the behavioral trait that is causing the problem despite knowing the consequences. That's kind of, to, give a, to clarify that kind of convoluted sentence, it's sort of like having a drink to fix the feeling of being hungover. That's the kind of cycle that we're talking yeah. about with addictive personalities. So we'll just go through briefly a list here of the common character traits of addictive personalities. And I think we're, we were going to stress this at the end of this list, but I'll say it at the beginning of the list too. You do not have to have all of these traits to have an addictive personality, even one or two probably two or more, are really indicative of a tendency this way. So take note and see if any of these sound familiar to you. The first one is a low frustration tolerance. This is the most common trait found in an addictive personality. It is the inability to endure any form or discomfort or any form of discomfort or pain, most often emotional pain, for any length of time. This trait manifests itself as impatience. Okay, and then we have impulsiveness, which I am a friend of. I know impulsiveness well. Basically, that's I want what I want when I want it. Or as I often say, instant gratification takes too long. Often impulsiveness is a source of pride, and an addictive personality will often consider impulsiveness an asset, even when there's evidence that their impulsivity is disruptive to their life. And whatever they do, they have to do it the right way. With a, gr- with a complete intensity until they are ex- <clears throat> until they are exhausted. Impulsivity, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, manifests itself <laughs> as a great burst of effort until the fun, which was produced short, which was producing short-lived good feelings, is gone and interest wanes. This can, in turn, lead to feelings of, fair, of failure or resentment, and I know that feeling well as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So next we have grandiosity. This is armor to hide feelings of low self-esteem. Often an addicted personality will, will portray an outwardly inflated version of themselves, although deep inner convictions reveal self-worthlessness, inferiority, or inadequacy. I have heard this phenomenon referred to as being arrogant doormat or an an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. And the next one is another close frenemy of mine is anxiety. Anxiety exists in all people, but it is exaggerated with an addictive personality. Often the addictive personality is not sure why they are anxious and experiences crippling nameless fears and dreads. Okay, and perfectionism. This is probably my very best frenemy. Personalities. Addictive personalities set impossible goals or standards for themselves, often so great that they are unable to attain them. This results in feelings of failure or guilt that turn that that in turn create pain and or discomfort that leads the addictive personality to seek relief from alcohol or a substance. Perfectionists or idealists and often make better than average workers. True. Uh, I can relate. <laughs> yep. Next is 
Uh, I can't even say this. <laughs> Isolationism. <laughs> you know certain words you just can't say? That's yes. One. Addictive personalities are often loners. They eventually shut themselves off from the rest of society in order to keep drinking or using the drug of their choice in a way that mainstream society would frown upon. This isolating behavior may make it hard to make or keep deep, meaningful relationships. And the next one is referred to as wishful thinking. Alcoholics are masters at this. I certainly was and sometimes still am. Not about drinking, but about other things. And this is the science of arranging to do what we want and then making it appear as sound and reasonable. For example, alcoholics will rationalize increasingly abnormal thoughts or actions to justify continuing to drink or use. I think that as I set a bar to myself and said, well, I'll never do that. And when I crossed over that line or that bar, I would normalize it in my own mind so that I could keep going. Oh, yeah. I oh, yeah. The next one is sensitivity. And we are all a very sensitive bunch, aren't we? But this trait manifests itself as the exaggeration of all negative relationships. Addictive personalities are easily hurt, but they tend to keep those hurt hurt feelings to themselves. Oh, yeah. This creates resentment and or anger management problems. This long-term anger resentment leads the addictive personality to seek relief, once again, from alcohol. And then there's defiance. This trait emerges as a result of unbearable conflict and anxiety. Alcoholic personalities tend to feel rejected by society, like they don't fit in, even if there is no evidence that this is, in fact, true. As a result, addictive personalities will defend him or herself and defy those who try to help them. Defiance can be a go-to smokescreen for most alcoholics as they will go to great lengths to avoid uncomfortable feelings like vulnerability, shame, or guilt. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. And we love to deflect. Mm-hmm. Defy, deflect. Yes. Oh, another D. Dependence. <laughs> Last one. In an addictive personality, dependence exists in some form or another, and not just physical dependence. Dependency can be solely emotional as well. Obviously, we're talking about alcohol on this show, but we, it also applies to things like food or shopping or gambling or sex. There's even exercise can even be an addiction. There are basically many, many iterations of this, but there has to be some sort of either physical or emotional dependency. Okay, and the addictive personality seeks out quit-acting substances like alcohol to relieve and escape from painful situations or emotions. Initially, an addictive personality type may experiment with alcohol or drugs or both uh, for relief, but as drinking only serves to go around an emotional issue instead of facing it, the experimentation becomes compulsive and then addictive because problems or emotions are only temporarily relieved or have the illusion of being solved. This perpetrates the use of more and more escaping behavior. In the case of this show, it's drinking to relieve pain. This, in turn, increases emotional stress due to consequences that begin to arise from drinking behavior, even if those consequences are all internal, like lack of self-esteem, guilt, shame, which in turn increases turning to drinking to relieve the stress, and then the cycle goes on. You don't have to have all of these traits to be classified as an addictive personality, like Ellie said before. 
two or more indicate a likelihood that you have an addictive personality. Even in sobriety, these character traits can endure without the use of alcohol to relieve them. Working a program of, of recovery to help identify, understand, and control these traits strengthens the person's recovery and increases the likelihood of successful long-term recovery. And we will talk later in the show about some tools you can use to help control addictive personality traits, which can ultimately sabotage your sobriety. So when we think of this list that we've just read, ladies, what do you think you identify with the most out of all those? Ellie, do you have one that you... Oh, I, it's easier for me to say which ones I, I don't identify yeah. with as much. Right. All of them to a certain degree, some of them more than others. I would say that anxiety, perfectionism, and impulsiveness are probably the three that I struggle with the most. Low frustration, low frustration tolerance being a, a, a very close fourth. Sensitivity, to, I mean, all of them really except for the, the word grandiosity threw me at first until I could see kind of when I dug a little bit deeper it shows it's not grandiosity like I think I'm great or better than you. It's mm-hmm. grandiosity like my outsides don't match my insides. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, yes. I think grandiosity is kind of the wrong word for it, as at least as it applies to me, but I certainly made sure that nobody could see what was really going on, whether it was good or bad, really, I mean, sort of across the board. And just the, the final point that I wanted to make is I think that what really struck me as I read this list is like, wow, these are all the character traits that I drank around or through, you know, or numbed around. I mean, I was self-medicating anxiety, and I was self-medicating perfectionism, and I was self-medicating sensitivity and frustration and impulsive. I mean, all of these things, these traits had consequences in my life, even without the drinking, and I'm getting ahead. We'll talk about that later. But it shows to me why it's so important to identify these, these characteristics because they don't just go away when I put the drink down. They're still there. Ever wish for a little bit of recovery inspiration on the go? Tiny Bubbles is a new podcast that brings you the best bits of the Bubble Hour podcast in quick little episodes, just 15 minutes long, but packed with wisdom, insight, and encouragement to live your life wholeheartedly and alcohol-free. Look for Tiny Bubbles wherever you get podcasts and subscribe today. Tiny Bubbles. Little bits of recovery goodness brought to you by the Bubble Hour. Sometimes all you need is a little pep talk so you can get back to living that beautiful life you're building. Well, sadly, there's not enough time in the show for me to describe <laughs> how every last one of these fit me in some form, but what really struck me was, like you guys, I didn't really get the whole grandiosity thing until I sort of really kind of looked into it and reread it. And I will say that when I was drinking, I was very arrogant. And I have been very, very humbled in recovery. And I don't mean arrogant as in, I think I always treated people kindly, but it was more about inside how I, the way I kind of, tried to make myself believe I was better than other people, and Uh Uh I wasn't. I mean, I was, in fact, I was barely hanging on that I was just, I I don't know, I was not very compassionate, and I was very hard on people who did have addictions, which is crazy because I was an addict, but 
I, I feel like those were kind of symptoms of arrogance and things that I do now I would have never done when I was drinking because I felt like it was not good enough for me. And I don't know, I can't really, I don't know if I can put words into it to explain what I'm trying you know, to you say. Know that, that resonates, sorry, Lisa, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Ellie, I, but how that resonates with me, all of a sudden I just had this flashback and I thought, you know, that is kind of, for me, reminds me of my drinking and dialing. Thank goodness I was sober before I had a Facebook page or anything, but that I would, the arrogance wasn't in like a, I'm great, but an arrogance in a, it gave me a confidence and a feeling like I just want to reach out and touch, I need to talk to people and I want to connect. And when I was sober, I'm still not a big phone person. Like I, I it was kind no, of like, either. it all of a sudden I would want to project, you know, the feeling of love and connectivity that I had created that wasn't real until it turned sour. And then I, I would get arrogant. I really would. Drunk. Yeah, and I think for me the arrogance came from more of a, I was very, and I still am, you know, I'm working on myself, but I think insecurity made me less likely, less likely to accept other people. And now I feel a huge shift because I kind of just accept who you are as you are. And, and I don't judge. I mean, I'm very different now. Thank God. And then another one that I really related to is perfectionism, the extremely unattainable goals for myself. I mean, it can be something like huge, like at work, you know, just making sure that I complete all deadlines and everything's done perfectly. And also it can be something, you know, at home, as in I've painted every room and ceiling and baseboard in my house, and if there's anything out of place, I have to fix it and... If I don't fix it, I'll see it, and it bothers me. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a huge, huge perfectionist, or I, and I'm working on it, so I'm not as, as bad as I used to be. And people don't know this about me. I'm, it's all very internal. I, you know, I don't walk around letting the world know that I'm kind of a crazy person. I try not to anyway, but I think it's still, <laughs> it's still there, you know. And then the, the last one that really struck me was isolationism. I'm definitely, and I always have been a loner, and which is not a safe way to be when you're in recovery. So forcing myself to not isolate is a huge part of my recovery. Mm-hmm. So I could go on for days about this, but there you go. Well, there's um, a lot of good segue there to the next thing that we wanted to talk about, which is kind of all falls under the umbrella of compulsive behavior, which is another big component of a personality or addictive personality. And so we'd like to talk a little bit further about compulsive behaviors. And there are some common traits that feed off of each other that are really common. It's probably the most common, they are the most common character traits found in addictive personalities. And they are low frustration tolerance, impulsive, and compulsive behaviors. Those three act like a kind of a perfect storm that can really jeopardize if you're people that are in recovery, it can jeopardize their sobriety, or if for people who are still drinking or using, it can certainly progress the disease. So compulsive behaviors in are a way that all, for alcoholics in recovery, at least, they can the way that they substitute one addiction for another, even in sobriety and sometimes especially in sobriety, and especially in early sobriety. Compulsive behaviors are actions that produce extreme excitement or emotional release and are followed by longer-term pain and discomfort. 
And these compulsive behaviors can be totally internal. Like we were just talking about, they don't have to be something that's visible to the world. They can be just what's happening in your head, thinking or imagining or feeling. Or they can be external in the way that you're working or having fun or talking with other people. These compulsive behaviors make you feel good short term, but they weaken you in the long run. And they are they all can be a big pitfall for you in sobriety and put your recovery in danger. So we want to talk about them in some more detail tonight. And um, a compulsive behavior very easily can replace drinking. And it can happen, you know, you can be sober for years. It really doesn't have anything to do with the length of sobriety. And it can keep either a person trapped in, in an addictive cycle or it can keep somebody trapped in, you know, an addictive mindset, which is almost just as much of a prison in some ways. You know, I didn't get sober to say feeling trapped right. with my crazy head, you know. So, I'm sorry, I'm sort of lost my place here. So, it keeps the person trapped in this addictive like, cycle because the outcome is the same. You replace the, you replace the behavior, so instead of alcohol, you've put in another harmful escaping behavior, and the equation remains the same. So, let's just take, for example, um, food. A recovering alcoholic experiences pain, and so they don't drink anymore, but they eat compulsively for the same illusion of control and comfort, and this produces the same immediate pleasure, but then creates future pain, in this case probably internal, maybe comes in the form of self-hatred or low self-esteem or feeling out of control or shame, which are not coincidentally all the same emotions that many of us felt when we were drinking. So I've heard the expression, you know, you're just... Actually, I have an argument with somebody about what the expression actually is, but just switching deck chairs on Titanic, you know, you're not safer than you were because it's the same mindset that you're left with at the end of it all. Right, right. That is that sense. how you guys have heard that expression, changing deck chairs? And t- somebody told me, like, it's like throwing deck chairs off the Titanic, and I said, well, that doesn't make any sense. Well, I've never heard of it. But maybe you've never heard it. Oh, okay. I've never heard of it either. Maybe somebody will go to our website and make a comment so I don't feel so totally crazy and tell me what it's supposed to be. Yeah, but it sounds good. I like it. Okay, yeah. All right, cool. So there are several major compulsive behavior groups, but we want to call attention to four in particular and want to just see if any of these are familiar to you. Eating, dieting. So compulsive overeating, compulsive dieting, anorexia, or a combination of the two, so binge eating followed by vomiting or excessive dieting. Anytime a recovering recovering person uses food obsessively or compulsively in an attempt to avoid pain, you could say that they have switched from a substance addiction to a food addiction. And these addictions are actually so closely linked that the food that they are often referred to as sister addictions. Gambling or any form of risk taking is another common replacement addiction. However, any form of unnecessary risk-taking could fall into this category and can be seen as a switch as well. Working, achieving, it is very common for alcoholics in early recovery to engage in obsessive and compulsive overworking and achieving. Often the motives for working excessively seem innocent to pay bills, make up for lost time, wanting to look and or be responsible, but this behavior can become addictive nonetheless. Working compulsively at the expense of other areas of life creates consequences that put a recovering alcoholic in jeopardy. Workaholism is another method of avoidance with regards to emotions, relationships, problems, and recovery needs. 
Another danger is that workaholism feeds perfectionism, another common addictive personality trait, creating a false and painful ideal that is often not a reality. This is something I suffered from greatly. <laughs> Escape. Escape as an obsessive compulsive behavior become, comes in many forms. Basically, it is the need to avoid daily routines of life and often as a means of isolation, which is another common addictive personality trait. If someone is obsessing about ways to avoid people, places, and circumstances and engaging in avoidance behaviors, problems will arise. Remember, there is a difference between solitude, you know, when you're relaxing, peaceful, you know, getting recentered, and isolation, which is when you're trying to hide from the world. Solitude reduces stress and brings a sense of mental and emotional health. Isolating increases stress and results in depression, loneliness, and pain. Hmm. I really like that. I really like the way, Amanda, you just sort of clarified the difference in between solitude versus isolating because really there is a big difference. There, I mean, solitude is something that we, you know, I would say, I would say not solitude. Yeah, solitude yeah. is something that we, we certainly need in life, everybody. Mm-hmm. Right. Other compulsive behaviors to be mindful of include spending, thrill-seeking, sex, and gambling. Even exercise can be done obsessively and as a means of escape. Remember when we talked. Remember when we talked about wishful thinking, otherwise known as rationalizing addictive personality to engage in wishful thinking. Any of the, I'm sorry, y'all. I just got kind of. I'm sorry, my Harper Lee. No, no. Okay, please forgive me. My dog. Harper Lee. Harper Lee has a dog. Harper Lee has my shoes. Harper Lee. No, 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 Harper. Okay, please forgive me, ladies. I'm, I'm very Quite sorry. Right. One day I'm going to get this right. <laughs> I'm not going to do this. It's okay. <laughs> okay. Um, but it was my brand new shoes, so it had... Okay, anyway. Okay, so we're, we're... Okay, remember earlier when we talked about wishful thinking, which is otherwise known as rationalizing addictive personality to engage in wishful thinking to hang on to their substitute addiction, which in turn leads to increased sensitivity and defiance. If you find yourself feeling sensitive about or defending behaviors, this is a sign that perhaps this behavior is becoming compulsive. Do you see how underlying traits in an addictive personality are present in all of these in all of these replacement behaviors? You may not be drinking, but your addictive personality could still be active and this will eventually endanger your recovery. And here we're going to talk a little bit about what we personally identify with the most in the compulsive behavior um, section. And for me, I will say, you know, working, like Amanda said earlier, she really struggled with that at first, and I did too. Probably for the first six months after I got sober, I worked and worked and worked. And it was almost like a, it was really an escape for me because I was sort of feeling like, okay, I can make up for lost time. Or if I do this, I won't have to, you know, think about drinking. And I did that for a while, and now I feel like I found my balance better. That doesn't mean that I still, I have to really watch myself because I find myself wanting my work to be perfect and everything that I complete to be perfect, but I've sort of learned to let go of that, and I'm okay now with doing the best I can. I also have to work on escape, kind of, I have to figure out and learn the balance better still between solitude and basically avoidance because fortunately for me, it's really not a possibility for me to be completely avoiding people. I have two young kids and I'm constantly on the go 
and which means interacting with people. So, you know, I'm really grateful that I'm able to force myself to do things that I would rather not do because I realize that it keeps me from completely avoiding people. So that's probably where I most see myself. What about you, Ellie? Yeah, I can relate to almost everything you said also because I was going to say that the working overachieving is definitely part of um, – I, I would say that the, the, the number two and three – like I think instead of gambling, you really should say risk-taking, and I take that a step further to say impulsivity, and that is a real – that I really have to be careful of, and, I have, and I'm very, because I'm so impulsive, I'm, I am seldom very careful about it, but at least in recovery, I have a heightened awareness, and even more importantly, I have people around me who, who can see it coming, even sometimes when I don't, or see that it's there, and to me, that kind of boils down to the fact that I realized when I first got sober that I wasn't just addicted to alcohol, I was also addicted to chaos. I really mm-hmm. I like chaos kind of a lot. You know, we've talked before about how on a scale of 1 to 10, I, I hate 5. I think a lot of <laughs> alcoholics do. There's um, no middle ground. Right. And given that recovery is all about being comfortable in the middle ground, that's something I've really struggled with. And especially as as my recovery increases and, you know, a lot of the things that I'm, the gifts that come with it are just amazing and more opportunities come my way and it's very, very difficult for me to continue to prioritize things like self-care and balance because I love chaos. And I tell myself, here we are in defiance now, that it's all healthy and worthwhile and it is, but not at the expense of my recovery and my self-care. Good Care is a new collection of recovery readings inspired by the Bubble Hour. If you love the encouragement and support you find here on this podcast, then this new book is for you. Visit thebubblehour.com for more information or check the show notes for a link to purchase. You'll find Take Good Care on Amazon Worldwide. Take Good Care, recovery reading inspired by the Bubble Hour, the perfect gift for yourself and friends. Others find the message of recovery we champion on the Bubble Hour. Plus, get access to the entire backlist ad-free by joining us on Patreon. Patron support helps with the ongoing expense of making free versions of the show available, as well as the cost to make new content like our spin-off podcast, Tiny Bubbles. Become a Bubble Hour patron today at patreon.com slash thebubblehour and help us help others through stories of strength and hope. Do you find that you work better under pressure? Do you kind of like the feeling of having a deadline and waiting until the last minute to get something completed? Absolutely. And I do okay, it because, it's again, it's that chaos thing. I like. I love it. it. I, I love knowing I'm not I the only myself, one. I myself, and I'm not 100% sure if this is true. I think sometimes there's evidence that it is and sometimes there's evidence that it isn't. But I tell myself that I do work better under pressure, and I know that I work better when I have a little bit too much to do. That Me too. I prioritize better, yeah. and I, you know, I actually make lists of things when I have a little bit too much to do. But it's it's teetering right on the scale of overwhelmed, and if it teeters into overwhelmed, I'm in trouble because I'm yeah. not very good at overwhelmed. I like being 
you know, and so I pack everything, you know, I, I pack everything into the last minute because that just makes it seem more exciting. And then that's definitely... Uh, maybe that's why I do it too, but I told someone recently, I re- someone asked that I, I really need a deadline. I do better when I have a deadline, like no matter what it is, give me a deadline and I'll wait till the last minute, but I'll finish it, you know, so... And probably do a good job too. It's not usually yeah, at the yeah. expense of the quality. At it's the just, expense of my sanity, which I barely right. have any left, so... I really should find a better way. But I, I'm a work in progress. So. <laughs> I was notorious for do, writing my school papers in study hall or over lunch the day they were due. I oh, think that's, yeah. I mean, that's... And I, I, and I, and I would get A's. Is there any other way? <laughs> I know. I know. No kidding. But, yeah, the, the working overachieving for me, it was, you know, not... So well, I guess it isn't so much now. Now I, I try to really pay attention to that because it was such a major problem. It actually did impact my relationships, and it was my scapegoat. I mean, I, I was having trouble in my marriage, and I would just work late, and I would just stay at work, and I was happy at work, and my workload is endless, so I could do that. And, I mean, I would work, you know, 14-hour days, 12, 14-hour days sometimes. And mm-hmm. so that was a huge avoidance issue for me. So, you know, that was something, that's something I have to continue to pay attention to. And actually, the, the same thing, I work better under pressure. And once I become overwhelmed, I almost shut down. So I have uh-huh. this little trick. When I do become overwhelmed, I file or do something mundane, like organize mm-hmm. my desk. Or something, and just so I'm actually getting something accomplished, and then I can then I can proceed forward. But it's something I that's have. That's something a form I have. of meditation too, don't you think? Doing something repetitive yeah. or mindless. Yeah. Yeah, I love doing that, mind yeah. numbing. And sometimes, you know, people at work will look at me like, "Well, you have more important things to do," and I'm like, "No, you don't understand. I need." To do this. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's just a right punch you in the face. You pick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You climb up into my little brain for a minute, and you'll you'll see that I you'll need understand. to do this. <laughs> all right. Well, so now we've talked about all the things to be wary of or um, aware of if you believe you have an addictive personality. And uh, well, so now what? What can you do to avoid falling into this trap of a replacement addiction or replacement thinking? And I really do want to stress that both are important to look out for because I think, especially as somebody who has relapsed before, the replacement, you know, the addictive thinking comes way before the actual relapse in many, many, many cases. And I just find that when the compulsive behaviors or the addictive thinking is starting to take over, I'm just not as content. And if I'm not content, then my recovery is in jeopardy. That's the bottom line. So what can you do to avoid, uh, to avoid falling into this trap? Well, first and foremost is always, for, for, from our opinion, to develop a sober network of support. We've talked a lot on this show about the importance of finding a sober community of people who really understand how you feel. Oftentimes, a sober network does not include your closest friends and family who, you, who may have been hurt the most by your drinking behavior or who may be toxic to you for other reasons. There, oftentimes, too, I, I want to take, you know, I think that the people that we are trying the hardest to kind of repair, I, and at least in my case, I just wanted, to, wanted their forgiveness and put a pink, pink bow on it and move ahead, and in early recovery in particular, it's usually best to try to find places for, for support in person or online or anywhere you can find it for people who are probably total strangers until they become your great friend. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And at the end of every show, we always direct you to our website where there is a tab that lists these communities and where you can find them online and offline. So the following things that we're going to talk about are not intended to be a replacement for finding a sober support system. That really kind of goes without saying as far as the bubble hour is concerned. But these are other tools to be used in addition to a sober network that you can keep in your toolkit, things that you can keep in your toolkit to help you understand and control and even repair addictive thinking. Another extremely important way to avoid, aside from a sober network, a way to avoid the pitfalls of addictive thinking and behavior is to find healthy replacements for the addictive or destructive behaviors. So much of successful recovery is about changing patterns. We talked about this a lot in our last show, which is called Total Recovery, where we ask recovering people what they do on a continual basis to stay sober, and almost all of them talked about replacing unhealthy behaviors with healthy ones. I mean, I, you know, I have been on a quest since I got sober to be compulsive about unhealthy behavior. <laughs> So if you can find yourself falling into, if you you can, if you do find yourself falling into a substitute addiction, let's just stick with the example of food. You can employ the same tactics that you can identify that you did when you got sober. Perhaps identify times of day when you're triggered to eat. Is it at the end of the day when you normally drank? Maybe. So find another behavior, a healthy one to replace eating, like going for a walk or talking to a sober person or a friend on the phone. Meditation, yoga, watch funny television, read a book, all the things that we discussed in our last show. Anything to get you through the most difficult time of day without turning to your substitute addiction or your addictive thinking. Or let's say you're working too much or spending too much time online to avoid unpleasant or difficult emotions. Changing your work habits or your work patterns to allow time for peaceful time to recharge or spending time with family or friends will be important. This goes back to the balance that all three of us pretty much admitted it's an ongoing issue or struggle for us, but we do at least have an awareness of the importance of it now. And if you find yourself unable to stop working, identify the emotion or situation that you are seeking to avoid. This is an important first step to do with any of these replacement behaviors that we're talking about. Now, if you can cultivate an awareness of, of the things that we've listed here and the things to be careful of, when you find yourself doing them, and in recovery you will, either somebody will tell you you're doing them or you'll have an awareness that you're doing them. And if someone's telling you, listen to the people in your life, in your life that you trust. That's a, that falls under the subcategory of defiance. Sometimes it can be hard to hear these things. But let's say if someone's telling you that you're working too much and you find yourself getting sensitive or defensive about it, or any other behavior, if you find yourself making excuses or rationalizing, remember that these are signs that you're trying to hang on to something that may not be healthy for you. And that that one major tool that we're going to talk um, a little bit more in more detail about to help you avoid these pitfalls is developing a positive self-talk habit. And I often hear it referred to as, quote-unquote, changing the tape in your head. Right. I actually, so some patterns of negative or uh, positive self-talk often start in childhood. Usually the self-talk habit is one that has colored our thinking for years and can affect us in many ways, influencing the experience of stress in our lives. The first step towards change is to become aware of the problem. You probably don't even realize how often you say negative things in your head or how much it affects your experience. You know This just reminds me, when someone pays you a compliment and you just automatically brush them off, it takes so long to to just say thank you. 
And it's such a simple thing, but that was just to accept the compliment. Because, and, and I think what finally broke through to me is someone said, you're actually insulting someone when you just brush off a compliment they pay, that they paid to you. So I just said, had to throw Good that point. in there. Yeah. <laughs> like so the following strategies can help you become more conscious of your internal dialogue and its content. Here are some ways you can stop yourself from using negative self-talk and use your mind to boost your productivity, self-esteem, and relieve stress. The first step is to become more aware of your internal dialogue. Journal writing. Carrying, carry a journal around with you and jot down negative comments when you think them, or write a general summary of your thoughts at the end of the day. By taking note of the patterns of your thinking, it will raise your awareness of your internal dialogue. I personally have never been good at writing anything down, but I, I, I learned this early <laughs> in recovery, and I just to, every time I was saying something negative, just to catch myself and to think about it and why I was reacting that way. And I guess that's thought stopping, which is the next mm -hmm. tool. And as you notice yourself saying something negative in your mind, you can stop your thought midstream by saying to yourself, stop. Saying it aloud is more powerful, and having to say it aloud will make you more aware of how many times you are stopping negative thoughts and whether there is a pattern or trigger to when or why they occur. And that was actually something that someone else had told me to do. Just to, to, They actually said to yell no. And I found that extremely powerful, not just in the negative thoughts, but in anything when I knew I was going, when that squirrel got on the little wheel and started going crazy in my head, saying no out loud really made me very aware of that my mind was going crazy and that I just needed to stop and think about what I was thinking and saying. So those are just a couple tools. Yes. And once we're more aware of our internal uh, dialogue, here are some ways that we can change it. Milder wording. Have you ever been to a hospital and noticed how the nurses talk about discomfort versus pain? It seems like something small, but how we respond to certain words has a big impact on our stress level or lack thereof. You can try this strategy in your daily life. In your self-talk, turning more powerful words to more neutral ones can actually help neutralize your experience. And there, I used to be the queen of just making horrible statements, like how terrible everything was when really it wasn't that bad. So instead of using words like hate and angry, as in I hate traffic, it makes me so angry, you can use words like I don't like traffic and it makes me annoyed. Not only does that sound mild, milder, it's closer to the true feelings you're experiencing, like more, more than likely experiencing are you really angry in traffic, or are you just kind of annoyed? Correctly identifying emotions is an important tool in early recovery to prevent dangerous exaggeration of emotion that leads to increased stress. Another one is change negative to neutral or, or positive. As you find yourself mentally complaining about something, rethink your assumptions. Are you assuming something is negative even when it isn't necessarily negative? For example... Having your plans canceled last minute can seem as a negative. Mm, wait, I should, I should step in here and say not to me. When my plans get canceled, I usually run around jumping up and down, very excited. <laughs> yeah, well, I did that today, didn't you? <laughs> but that's just me. <laughs> not everyone has that. Anyway, but what you do with your... What we, what you do with your really free schedule can be what you make of it. Yes, it sure can. 
The next time you find yourself stressing about something or deciding you're not up to the challenge, stop and rethink it. See if you can come up with a neutral or positive replacement. And for me, that's usually not a problem. I can usually change my plans and be pretty happy. And the, the next one is change self-limiting statements to questions. Self-limit, and I think this is very important, self-limiting statements like, I can't handle this or this is impossible are really damaging because they increase your stress in a given situation and they stop you from searching for solutions because you've already made up your mind that you can't handle this or this is impossible. The next time you find yourself thinking something that limits the possibilities of that limits the possibilities of a given situation, turn it into a question. Um, in other words, doesn't how can I handle this or how is this possible sound more hopeful? And doesn't it open up your imagination to new possibilities? Absolutely. This is huge. And I think that, for me, that's probably what I identify most within this section. I know that, for me, since I've been in recovery, I have learned to rephrase my thinking and retrain my brain and think in a better, more positive way. And it does help. It makes a difference. Even if initially I feel like something is impossible, if I really stop and think about it, there's probably a way I can make this happen. I just have to kind of find new ways, and it's all part of my process. I think it's teaching me that I can do more than I ever thought, that I'm, strong, strong, that I'm definitely stronger than I ever gave myself credit for. So to me, it's been very empowering to learn how to think in a different way. I definitely, it's, I was sort of chuckling to myself as I was thinking about all of this and I, how... Um, in early recovery in particular, I would have a, a close recovery friend trying to teach me how to do this, and I felt ridiculous. It, like, it was sort of like fake it to make it because I was queen of, you know, hyperbole. Everything was terrible. Like, Lisa said, or horrible, or I can't, or I won't, or it's impossible. And, and I was also, I had, like, I would dump all sorts of emotions into one word, like, you know, how are you today, Ellie? And I would say, good. And she was like, I would like to know specifically what you mean by good. Or how are you to Ellie? Bad. Okay, well, like you did. You know, what do you mean? Bad's not. That doesn't tell me anything, because I realized I literally did not know how to access how I felt. I was so used to, you know, I'm happy. Let's drink. I'm sad. Let's drink. Let's. I just. I never really had to pursue what was really going on. So even that small example of I'm angry at traffic. Well, you're not really angry at traffic. You're annoyed. Like finding accuracy in how I felt took a lot of practice. And still does for me. Because of what I've learned is that when I start to get those sort of grand sweeping statements like this is impossible or I can't handle this, that is totally my disease talking. Because mm -hmm. my disease is looking for me to be overwhelmed or depressed or um, anxious or it feeling as though it's, it's fruitless anyway, so why even bother? It's basically mm -hmm. just shoving me in the directions of the efforts. What does it matter anyway? Right. And... So I thought this was, this whole reframing stuff was really pretty corny, but I have really come to respect how important it is, and a lot of people talk about how you become what you feed. So if you're feeding bitterness and anger, you're going to become more bitter and anger. If you're feeding positivity and hopefulness, you're going to become more positive and hopeful. And all I can picture when people would say things like this is like a Disney character skipping through a field. I'm like, well, life's just not like that. And that's just, you know. And right. I, I life's not just like anything, but it's how can I was engage in exaggerations when it was negative and never when it was positive. It was so imbalanced for me, and that's when it really hit home that 
I have to train myself to do this because it does not come naturally. And Amanda, your example of the thank you to a compliment, that really hit home because I don't know how to say thank you to a compliment. I love your dress. Oh, it was only $20 I found on the ground. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I can't just say thank you. Or I like your jewelry. Oh, well, I'm still learning. I don't really care. It, it is insulting to somebody who is, you know, vulnerable enough to pay you a compliment. That's it's how I was, we I would in our head. Like, oh, shut up. Oh, shut up. Yeah. Or you can be oh, like whatever. me, and I would just kind of look down and be like, what, huh? And pretend like I didn't hear it. Or a really funny thing I saw once said, anytime someone gives me a compliment, I have the urge to say, happy birthday, because I can't. <laughs> say thank you. It's just anything that, that thank you. Don't acknowledge me. Don't say I've done something great or that I look nice. Or, that is, it really bothers me. And I, I know it is insulting, but I'm still working on that. Yeah, that's something that I think it takes a lot of, it's, it's very, very common. That we're not alone in that at all. Yeah, Amanda, what about sometimes you? I've, I sometimes I find myself choking on it, like coming out of my mouth. I'm like, I'll start to say something and I stop myself and I'll just say, Thank you. And it's hard. It's, it's, it's so simple, but I don't know why. I, I guess I, and that has to, I, you know, to me that goes a lot, has a lot to do with the self-esteem and, you know, you know, just being able to acknowledge that, oh, okay, maybe I did something good. And so now I just say, oh, you're welcome. Or thank you. You know, if, if someone says thank you to me, even it makes me uncomfortable. If I do something for them, I might bend over backwards, and they'll say thank you, and I'm like, uh, oh, um, no. j- just doing my job. <laughs> nothing. Yeah. I've just spent three weeks on this, but no, it was nothing. I mean, it was, yeah, yeah it was nothing. Oh, thank you. You know, so just saying you're welcome. But for me, I studied this intensively in early sobriety in my different programs, and one thing that has been a really, really good tool for me is trying to find the positive, kind of like what Lisa was saying, out of any negative. So what's the benefit here? Someone changing a plan? Oh, well, I got some time to myself trying to think of some other examples, but just finding, well, it wasn't something as simple as, well, it wasn't meant to be. And just it, if something is really awful, well, something, it could be worse. So, and I don't know if I'm explaining that very well, but just, just really practicing that Always. I think like, you're also touching on something very important, which is getting out of victim thinking. Because sometimes, like when I got cancer, I sort of thought, ah, take that, you positive, happy people. How are you going to put a good spin on this? Mm-hmm. And I realized it's not about, you know, dressing up a pig or putting, being in denial about a hard situation. But with time and going through a few things in recovery, I've learned to say, I wonder what I'm going to learn from this or how I'm going to grow. Because I know that I will. I know that yeah. I will come. Yeah, I, will, I, I need to learn something or dig deeper or figure something out. Or, and I was able, sort of, after the train went completely off tracks, I pulled myself back together again. And I, I sort of thought, I had never really thought of it as a total gift, but I thought, boy, oh, there was a great quote. I mean, and now I'm going to, I don't mean to be so all over the place, but one of my favorite singers is the guy Griffin House. And he was mm-hmm. describing in an interview that I read recently that when he's admitted publicly that he's sober now, and he would talk about his old drinking buddies, and they would have a particularly hard night. And the next morning, they would look at each other and say, wow, that was a learner. <laughs> Less meaning. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's either a learner or not a learner, and I'll take a learner. 
any time. I will take an experience that teaches me and makes me grow in uncomfortable right. ways over something that is just so easy that I don't pay any attention to it and I don't grow. Yeah. So that's getting out of victim harder. thinking. Like everything happens to me. How could cancer happen to me? I stopped learning to stop thinking that way instead of thinking like, I wonder where this is going. Mm-hmm. You know? So it's yeah. not like, yay, yeah. everything can't be a good experience, but it certainly it helps to look at it objectively and not throw it into the horrible, terrible column every time. Right. Yeah. I, I, I do that same thing I have when things are really bad. And, you know, and sometimes they're, they're, there's not an immediate solution. It's not like, you know, oh, my car didn't start and it'll be fixed and so something wonderful happened. Sometimes it's something that you have to wait years to find out why it happened. Yeah. But I, I have this, you know, just this belief that things happen the way that they're supposed to and it'll be a learning experience and actually two two really well I'll learn down the road why it happened the way that that it was supposed to happen so I kind of have this weird faith in that that things you know I will see why I needed to go through what I had to go through and I don't think that's weird at all Amanda I think that that's really quite why it's comforting that way it is comforting. It's weird. It's, it's weird that we get that way now, but it is comforting. You're right. And two other two other things I do is well, one thing I always <clears throat> I I still do is sometimes when I have some crazy thought goes flashing through my head, I'll I'll catch myself because that's something that's kind of ingrained in me to do it myself, and I'll 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 like kind of chuckle to myself and I'll say, "Oh, good one, you idiot! <laughs> you want to calm down?" <laughs> Wait. <You know>? <laughs> And I just kind of laugh at myself. I'm just like, wow. I really laugh at myself to... all the time, yeah. You, you need to call somebody tonight while you are out of control. <laughs> and, you know, that, that helps me a lot. And the other thing is when I'm going through something that's really hard is, you know, someone, I think my sponsor said to me, you're going through this because you can handle it and you aren't going to be given anything that you can't handle. And the reason why you're going through it is so you can help someone else, else go through it in the future. And to me, that was like, wow, okay, so this is a gift. And sometimes that's hard to believe. <laughs> Especially some of the things I've had to go through, but some it, it's it, it's actually come true. Inevitably, I, I mean, that that was for such a long time, and still kind of does. It's been my least favorite expression. It just makes me profoundly uncomfortable. But maybe because it's always so right. When you're in the middle of something hard, and you hear that, you're thinking easy for you to say. But then with time right. and recovery, you start you realize over and over again it turns out to be true. So they're bumper stickers for a reason. <laughs> they're true. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. All right. Well, all of these tools that we've talked about are designed to address the thinking behind the trigger to drink, or at least become aware of the thinking behind the trigger to drink or have addictive thinking or compulsive behaviors. The concept, interestingly, of retraining your brain is an important one, and our plan right now is to address this in more detail for next Sunday show, we hope to have something kind of new and different in store, but I'm not going to go into any detail because we don't know if technically we can make it happen or not. We're going to try. We're going to try. So be sure to tune in next Sunday for more information on on that topic. 
But the bottom line here is that addictive personalities are at risk for emotional substitutions that aren't healthy, even if they successfully stop drinking. Addressing the root causes of what makes you engage in escaping, isolating, or defensive behaviors is an important part of not just staying sober, but continuing to grow in recovery. And so with that, I will say thank you to Amanda and Lisa. Great talking to you guys as always. Ladies. And remember, everyone who's listening, that we our website is www.thebubblehour.com. So I hope all of you have a wonderful night. And thank you for listening to The Bubble Hour. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Good night. Bye-bye. Good night. Good night. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power head on me In a dark corner is where shame likes to hide We you think you're strong just cause you'll keep it on the side It just stays in wait there to rob you of your pride Turn the light on, turn the light on, you can shine When you see I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Oh, this head on You don't have to shout it out on Main Street to be clear You don't need to whisper to confession every person you should talk to is looking at you in the mirror And the one who matters most can always hear When you say I'm old, different Not proud, but that was me And when I face it, I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from the power Oh, you said I'm I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free